From Lost and Found Sound, the Sonic Memorial Project, I'm Paul Oster. Thanks for calling the Lost and Found Sound line here at NPR. This is Jay Allison. At this moment, we are gathering audio that relates, in some way, to the events of September 11th, before, during, and after. We're looking for audio artifacts, both personal and historic. We came together over the last year. Radio producers, artists, construction workers, bond traders, secretaries, archivists, iron workers, policemen, widows, firefighters, public radio stations and listeners to chronicle and commemorate the life and history of the World Trade Center and its neighborhood. We appreciate your help in documenting this time, these places, and these people. Thanks. Message 33 was received at 10.50 a.m. Thursday. My name is Jake Nichols. As a kid, I grew up in a tenement on 49th Street, Hell's Kitchen in New York. And when the World Trade Center buildings were going up, my dad told me, when those are finished and the race between the two buildings is over, we're going to go up on the top. My dad said at the time, these buildings will last for a thousand years and they'll be here forever. Hundreds of you left your testimony and remembrances phone messages, music, and small shards of sound. From these calls and from dozens of interviews done by producers across the nation comes this collection of voices, stories, and sound. We call it a sonic memorial. Reader's Digest called the World Trade Center when we announced it the largest building project since the Egyptian pyramids. I'm Guy Tizoli, I'm president of the World Trade Center's Association. Initially, I was the director of the World Trade Center of New York, uh, responsible for planning, designing, and operating and constructing the World Trade Center. We started construction in 1967. The 16 acres of the World Trade Center site was nothing but an old Washington market. It was over 100 years old. One day, we found the homemade time capsule. So there was this rusty thing. It looked like a torpedo. It had in it two packs of cigars. It had 17 cards in it from a place called the Irish Foundry Works. And the barrister wrote this note. He said, we're about to create this capsule. So all we can say is we're putting our cards in here and we hope that whoever digs this up will be building a greater marketplace than exists. History repeats itself. The Trade Center was a marketplace, okay? There have been marketplaces for 2,000 years. And therefore, all we did was we modernized the marketplaces and gave them technology to do, do things better. Stephen Scott and the Bode Piano Ensemble recorded live at the Winter Garden in the World Financial Center on October 25th, 2000. Nearly all the recordings and audio artifacts you'll hear this hour were recorded over the last 70 years at the World Trade Center and surrounding neighborhoods. The past and the present are entangled in the streets and in the neighborhoods of the city. And nowhere is that more powerful than the neighborhood around the World Trade Center. I'm Robert Snyder. I'm a professor at Rutgers University in Newark. I'm a historian who's written and studied New York City over the years. You've got twisty, squirrely network of streets that goes back to Dutch New York. And that's why the streets don't conform to the grid pattern above 14th Street. And they follow old Dutch farmsteads, canals. So you've got this 17th century street layout and 20th century skyscrapers right next to each other. And you've got an 18th century church like St. Paul's, the African-American burial ground. And what we think of now as the World Trade Center neighborhood was a largely maritime neighborhood. Wharves going down the west side practically to the battery. You could always look around and have a sense of the past by just looking out to the Hudson River and the harbor where so much of the city's history began, where so many people got their first look at America. Message 15 was received at 12.40 p.m. December 2nd. Good day, my name is Captain Anderson. I know New York City intimately, but mostly from the water. When I first started working in New York, they had just completed the World Trade Center. 
I've carried passengers around the tip of Manhattan hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times, gliding through the water on a sailing vessel. The entire crew and passengers lay on the deck as we sail around and we watch the spectacular buildings begin to twinkle with light. There's nothing like it anywhere on the earth. I never became bored of it. Just south of where the World Trade Center stood was a neighborhood of Syrians, Greeks, and Turks. All that started to change with the decline of the harbor and the decline of manufacturing in the city. When the World Trade Center came in, it was partly an attempt to invigorate a neighborhood that seemed to some people to be sort of declining. And the Trade Center overshadowed and sometimes obliterated the kind of neighborhood that had been there before. Message was received at 1.20 p.m. April 10th. My name is Fred Apt. In 1931, I was 14 years old. My uncle brought me a crystal set from Cortland Street, Radio Row. After the war in 1946, I began selling radio and electronic parts under the name of Durf Radio. I was located a few blocks north of the Radio Row on Hudson Street. I moved my business to Westchester County, when they were going to build the Trade Center. Thank you for your time. Although you could buy almost anything here in Lower Manhattan, the great number of electronic shops in the neighborhood gave it the name Radio Row. Radio Row, 1929. The sound you're hearing comes from an early newsreel shot on Cortland Street in Lower Manhattan, the very spot where the World Trade Center came to be. To the Port Authority, the construction of the World Trade Center might have meant growth, but to many of the 300 small businessmen in the 13 blocks to be cleared for the center and its 16-acre plaza, it meant disaster. The little businessmen on Cortland Street and the big businessmen who own the Empire State Building have fought for two years in and out of court, but apparently to little avail. And although the court battle is still being fought, the construction of the $350 million World Trade Center may have taken another significant step. This is Tom Dunn, Channel 2 News in Lower Manhattan. My father started the first radio store on Cortland Street in 1921. So when they started to build the World Trade Center, I said to my father, who was retired by that time, I said, Pop, I said, let's take a ride down to Cortland Street. I said, this is going to be your last chance to see the area before it's completely gone. So he said, all right. And he put on a Mackinac and his normal fedora, and we went down to Cortland Street. And he got out of the car, and I did, he didn't say anything at first, and then sort of took a gaze down the whole length of the street and then said, wow, it is totally gone. That was about the extent of the conversation. I had thought that it would affect him, you know, reminiscing about, I started Radio Row, now Radio Row is a thing of the past. No. It, it didn't interest him. The hell, he acted like a New Yorker. He took it in stride. Everything changes. Neighborhoods come and go. So, went back to the car and off we went. Message 36 was received at 5.10 p.m. November 30th. My name is Ernie Scott. I'm a piano player, and I performed at Windows on the World from 1996 to spring of 1998. During that time, CNN came and filmed while I was playing, and it was a pan around the bar and the windows. It was just a gorgeous shot. I lost a lot of friends at the center, and I just wished that people can remember those precious moments that they used to come up to the windows. Received at 3.20 p.m. October 22nd. Hi, my name is Robert Olin. Um, I work for Thatcher, Prophet & Wood. 
which was formerly housed on uh, floors 38 through 40 of Two World Trade Center about two weeks or so before the attack. Um, I happened to videotape maybe a minute or two of footage in our office touring a little bit of the space. Um, I am commentating about what I see and who's in which office and things like that. It's the lovely office that I spend my days and nights in. These are my neighbors, Rev and Tom. This is where we also throw footballs down the hall. My name is Steven Vitello. I'm a sound artist from New York City. I was an artist in residence at the World Trade Center in the summer and fall of 1999. The Lower Manhattan Cultural Council formed an agreement with the Port Authority to allow a certain number of spaces to be used by artists as long as spaces were not rented to other businesses. I ended up in an office on the 91st floor that had been an executive of a Japanese investment bank. It was right during the time of the Asian fiscal crisis, and this business, it seemed like it just left in the middle of the night. Things were just ripped out of the walls. There was phone cables everywhere. There was some fuzzy slippers and someone's mug with Japanese writing on it. What I thought I would be able to do is put microphones outside the window of the World Trade Center and amplifying what was outside, but also the sound of the building itself. And was surprised to find out as soon as I got there that I couldn't open the windows. The only thing that worked were these little $20 contact microphones. It looks like a dime on the window, running to the mixing board, running to headphones. So I would sit in this chair at night, feeling like I was listening through a stethoscope to the, the heart and soul of the building. Certain days it sounded like an orchestra tuning up. You just heard a swirl of tone, everything abstracted, a beautiful drone and roar. Other days, there was no wind. You could hear kids screaming from the park down below, or you'd hear traffic jams. Sometimes you'd go up and, and the room was totally immersed in clouds, or there was an incredible hawk that every once in a while would hover outside my window. There was a recording that I did the day after Hurricane Floyd, which was one of the two strongest hurricanes to hit New York in, in the 90s. You really could feel the building swaying and the glass and steel creaking and cracking. We wired up a photo cell, which is usually used in electronics such as a light meter. And we were able to use it to amplify the sound of lights outside the building, especially through the eye of a telescope. We could amplify the white light hum of a police car and the flicker and the flash as its lights were, were flashing uh, even across the river in New Jersey. In one of the rooms, we could see straight through to the Empire State Building, and so you could pick up a kind of drone of light coming through from the offices, but also a rhythm if the light was flickering or flashing. Once my project was going, I felt like I really had a unique reason for being there in a big office tower where a lot of people are doing something very differently. And it's, it's also, even in 99, it was a place with a, a slightly dangerous history. And, and having been the target of terrorism, it was, there was a weight to working there, and yet it was also a privilege. Swing me up a little bit higher, oh, but I do. Swing me up a little bit higher, and I will February Swing me up Hello, my name is Lydia Robertson. My mother died on uh, September 11th on the 97th floor of Tower One. She was the senior vice president of Marsh, uh, McLennan in, in, uh, for technology, and uh, she uh, left quite a le legacy. She had upwards of 40 foster children in her lifetime. She worked her way up from single mom, unemployed, no education, to getting herself a college degree and putting a great many of us through school and uh, was a pretty amazing person. My mother... Valerie Joan Hanna was a daughter of a Texas cattle rancher army man and a Philadelphia socialite. She married rather young and 
When I was five years old, she left my father. She brought along the seven foster boys that she'd collected and moved out and started fresh with uh, a high school diploma and a lot of will. She started out as a key punch operator and um, moved from place to place, always moving up. She hit glass ceiling to glass ceiling, always collecting more foster children. She also worked as a waitress here and there. We went a couple semesters at a private school. They let her um, do janitorial work at night, which we didn't know about. She put a lot of us through a lot of different schools working that hard. She was big into voting rights, you know, and she didn't care who you were as long as you voted. You know, I was a little girl in the back of, a, of the van once, and I must have been maybe six and she was picking up elderly to drive them to the polls. And this old man was saying, why are you doing this? I know you're a Democrat. And my mom said, I don't care how you vote as long as you vote. She was someone who couldn't stand not helping if she could. She worked her way up to the top. She was the senior vice president of technology at Marsh in Tower One on the 97th floor when she um, disappeared. Message 29 was received at 7.30 a.m. Friday. Hello, my name is Eric Milano. Um, I'm calling on behalf of my friend who was killed in the World Trade Center. He was a firefighter. His name is Christopher Pickford. His younger brother and I collaborated to uh, make a compilation tribute CD in Chris's memory, which contains much of Chris's music that he created and also contains some answering machine messages from him. Spam, I got good news. I'm, uh, I'm starting the investigation process for a uh, firefighter candidate. So uh, I might be a fireman sometime in the near future. Spam, tonight we're going to the studio. I just got this brilliant idea. Me, you, and Bernie, we're going to put in $33 each. We're going to get two hours in the studio. And anything more than that, we'll tell people you owe them, but we'll just never pay them. We'll go in, we'll lay down new vocals for you. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get you ripped up into a frenzy. And uh, we'll finish it. That's what I think we should do. Give me a call. I just called your job. I told him I was Mr. Scalady. Mr. Scalady. Uh, that's my new name, by the way. Uh, I will uh, talk to you. What do you think? I'm going to call Bernie. It's, I know it's out of... It's probably not going to happen, but, you know, shut up. All right, bye. Robinson. I am um, a conceptual artist and I recently completed a piece called Tower Hollers. It's a sound installation that was first realized at the World Trade Center Residency Program sponsored by the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council in 1999. Tower Hollers is about the World Trade Center. Is 455 small boxes with speakers in it, which is the number of tenants in the World Trade Center at the time of my residency, in which I played sort of a, a mix of work songs, hollers, and reels and labor songs that came from the South, and remixed it with elevator music. I was inspired by a trip that I took on the elevators there in Tower One, going to my studios, hearing the elevator music. It was sort of, here comes the sun, this mellow tune. And um, standing there in the back of the elevator with a maintenance worker, a woman who was in her uniform and carrying sort of a cleaning cart with all the business executives in their suits, I felt like an affinity for her. And I wanted to sort of create this music, this music to soothe the weary worker the secretary or even the CEO, sort of a celebration of work and labor and the towers and what it meant. I wanted to use the speaker as a stand-in for the, for the human voice, custom-made speaker boxes that were huge structures called Houses of Joy, and a lot of meanings within the community where I grew up in the Bronx, especially in Jamaican street parties. 
and it being so important to the working class people in the, in the boroughs and just getting through the day to day. Message 13 was received at 6.10 p.m. November 29th. In my many years of being in the United States, I often went to Twin Towers to visit friends of mine which worked there. And at nighttime when uh, everybody was gone, you could hear the Mexican radios or the tapes listening as they worked cleaning the place. Mexican, Central American. This is the guys in clean place. Guys then do the cooking. The guys then pick up the garbage at that place. Maybe in one of your uh, little uh, remembrance there, you could put in a little bit of that music. Tex-Mex, mostly uh, Norteños from uh, Texas. And they're the Mexicans that came here and picked up your uh, dirty work. They die with you guys. Help them out. Remember them. Thank you. was received at 3.10 p.m. December 4th. Hello, my name is James Burton. My wife and I were married at the Top of the World Observation Deck on February 14, 1998. They were looking for 55 couples who wanted to get married at the World Trade Center. 55 couples, 110 people to match with 110 stories of the building. If there was... In the background, such a thing as a wish come true. I am Mrs. Vanessa Johnson. I would wish. He's always singing around the house. That's like our song. I used to come through the World Trade Center every morning on my way to work. And I would take the PATH train to World Trade. And when you come up the escalators, those long escalators in World Trade Center, there was an electronic billboard, and it said, Get Married on Top of the World, Valentine's Day. I wrote an essay, emailed it over. By 2 o'clock, I got a response saying, you know, congratulations. <laughs> I was so happy, and it wasn't until later on in the day that I realized I had to tell John <laughs> that we were going to get married in six days. Whenever we have an argument, he's the one that came up with, whenever we see the World Trade Center, we have to kiss, no matter what. And at first, it was like... Man, I'm upset. I don't want to give you a kiss. Sometime we would be somewhere out in Jersey and you'd look up on the turnpike or something and there's a World Trade Center and we're sitting in the car and not speaking, ignoring each other. But because we see them now, I have to give them a kiss and then, you know, we kind of laugh. And it was something that put us back on track when we couldn't get on track, you know, on our own. I want to welcome you to the World Trade Center. I'm Judge Frederick Berman. I'm Judge Frederick Berman. For many years, I've had the pleasure and privilege of performing weddings on Valentine's Day atop the World Trade Center. We did three an hour, every 20 minutes. They would put ads in papers around the country and abroad saying, if you are interested in getting married atop the World Trade Center on Valentine's Day, write us a letter and tell us why you would like to do it. The weddings that I actually performed, I have copies of all those letters so that I could personalize each of the ceremonies. The top cards are my notes. They met at the World Trade Center two years ago. He works in the food and beverage department. My name is Enrique Mejia, and I work in the food and beverage department. I wrote that I just couldn't see myself getting married nowhere else but up here. I was working downstairs as a tour guide. He was working up here. So it's like everything happened here. We got engaged last year, about Valentine's. He called me over to the window to see the view, and then he just 
popped the question, and everybody from the food and beverage came with wine glasses and just started celebrating. People are moving towards closed doors. Port Authorities of New York and New Jersey welcomes you to the observation deck at the World Trade Center. We're traveling in a bonus elevator at a speed of 20 miles per hour. My name is Lou Johnstante. Uh, in the early 1980s, I was doing a lot of sound recording in New York City. In October of 1982, I went to the World Trade Center to record. I went up to the observation deck on the top with an elevator full of tourists, and I recorded the taped message we heard as we went up. And then up on the top, I interviewed people from all over the world. The sounds of the different languages seemed important to the sound of the place. It's for me now, you know, I don't, be, I can't believe my eyes, you know. Yes, I come to see from uh, Egypt what the civilization of American people. What do you think? I can't think. It's very, very important. It's very good. It's for me, it's something incredible, unbelievable. When we go back to Egypt, going to save for my friends, I see something like pyramids, you know? You know, did you hear about pyramids in Egypt? <laughs> and then I left with another elevator full of tourists. And at the time, I remember thinking, I wish that baby wasn't crying. It's spoiling the recording. But now, today, listening to it, I think it sounds just right. Received at... 9.20 p.m. November 8th. Hi, my name is Ben Cheer, and I'm a sound effects recordist. I happen to be recording elevators at the World Trade Center around about two weeks before September 11, and I have pristine recordings of the elevators. I'd be happy to contribute these recordings. My name is Ben Cheer, and uh, I was hired to record some sound for a movie. It involves a scene where Al Pacino takes a, a long elevator ride up to within the World Trade Center, you know, discovers this opium den. This is uh, a sound. A team of, of elevator mechanics were um, removing the, the hatch from uh, one of the shorter ele elevator runs so we could actually record the elevator, but inside the shaft as the elevator was traveling. Yep. And uh, these guys were actually riding on top of the elevator. It was pretty wild. I remember thinking that with my recordings, how little conversation there is in between recording the takes of the elevator and how disappointed I was that I didn't roll on more of the discussion that was going on in the meantime, getting more memories of the elevator operators and so forth. People created the World Trade Center. I mean, obviously it was a masterpiece in engineering and in architecture, but like any community environment or building or office space, it's, um, it's, it's all about the people and, and that's where the memories lie, I think. Yeah, you gotta pick it up a little. There you go. Hi. What I'm hoping you'll find from someone is the sound of the revolving doors in the World Trade Center. And it always struck me how they beat like heartbeats. There was a thump, 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 thump. This life beat. In the many years that my office was there, on the 77th floor of North Tower, one of my great joys was to walk around. Remember, a quarter of a million people pass through the Trade Center every day. Guy Tizzoli, president of the World Trade Centers Association. Within the World Trade Center of New York, each day, 250,000 people, and many of them were tourists and visitors from other parts of the country, from other parts of the world. And you'd watch them walking through the lobbies, sitting on the plaza in the sun, listening to some of the concerts that we had. Odetta performing at the World Trade Center Plaza on July 27, 2001. 
Hillary North worked at the Aeon Corporation on the 103rd floor of two World Trade Center. Hillary wrote this poem. Okay, um, the poem is called How My Life Has Changed. I can no longer flirt with Lou. I can no longer dance with Myra. I can no longer eat brownies with Suzanne Y. I can no longer meet the deadline with Mark. I can no longer talk to George about his daughter. I can no longer drink coffee with Rich. I can no longer make a good impression on Chris. I can no longer smile at Paul. I can no longer hold the door open for Tony. I can no longer confide in Lisa. I can no longer complain about Gary. I can no longer work on a project with Donna R. I can no longer get to know Yolanda. I can no longer call the client with Nick. I can no longer contribute to the book drive organized by Karen. I can no longer hang out with Millie. I can no longer give career advice to Suzanne P. I can no longer laugh with Donna G. I can no longer watch Mary Ellen cut through the bullshit. I can no longer drink beer with Paul. I can no longer have a meeting with Dave W. I can no longer leave a message with Andrea. I can no longer gossip with Anna. I can no longer run into Dave P. at the vending machine. I can no longer call Steve about my computer. I can no longer compliment Lorenzo. I can no longer hear Herman's voice. I can no longer see the incredible view from the 103rd floor. I can no longer take my life for granted. My name is Minori Yamasaki. Uh, I was born in 1912 in Seattle. Well, my parents came uh, to the United States just a few years before uh, I was born. I see. Minoru Yamasaki, the architect who designed the World Trade Center, was interviewed in 1960 by John Peters. What is the case for the World Trade Center then? I think beyond just the fact of getting the people together, the Port Authority wanted to focus attention on world trade. I felt this way about it, that if we're going to build this many square feet, that we shouldn't build a low, uninteresting structure. I didn't think that we were going to go that high, but I thought that we ought to have a quality about it that would interpret the fact that world trade could mean world peace. Uh-huh. It was terribly important. It was just not another office building. Mr. Yamasaki worked in models. He did 50 different schemes. One building, 10 buildings, 12 buildings on the 16-acre site, okay? And, and I gave him a program, so many feet of office space, 15 million square feet totally. So Yama's working on his model, and he says he liked the Twin Tower scheme. So I said, well, it looks pretty good with the plaza, which is almost the size of Piazza San Marco in Venice. And I say, Yama, does it meet my program? 
No, he said, it's two million feet short. I said, why is that? He said, you can't build a building taller than 80 floors. <laughs> and I say, Yama, President Kennedy's going to put a man in the moon. I'll tell you what, I have a very queasy feeling in my stomach right now because I'm at, uh, let's see, 1,500 feet. There is somebody out there in a tightrope walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center right at the tippy These top. are the towers of New York's World Trade Center. They are 1,350 feet high. And this morning, a young Frenchman named Philippe Petit, an accomplished aerialist who can't resist heights, walked a tight wire from tower to tower. I love to go on the high wire. You, you're never sure that you will do it, because that's the, the wind was big, the wire was shaking a lot, you know. Why did you do this? There is no why. Just uh, because uh, um, when, when I see a beautiful place to put my wire, I cannot resist. Philippe Petit, he really planned like one would plan a bank heist almost, etc. And he showed up in my office and said, I'm a French journalist, and these two people are my assistants. So he came back to see me day after day. Somehow or other, whenever we talked, he constantly got back to the question of how do these buildings move in the wind? I spent actually nine years of my life organizing secretly this uh, illegal walk how can I bring three tons of equipment in one of the most guarded buildings in America, rig the wire, which usually takes three or four days, and not get shot and not get caught, and then the, the wind and the moving buildings. They used a, an old crossbow, and then he shot the cord, across the chasm, as I call it, from one end to the other, and they would attach it to the window washing device. The first step is the one where you unglue yourself from the building and you have decided to play this moment of your life. I could feel the, the wind. I also could feel the, the vibration or the breathing of the Twin Towers. Because of the difference of temperature, they breathe, they move, they don't really sway to the human eye. But I can assure you, I remember vividly some kind of vibration at times on my wire as I was uh, dancing and, and even laying down between those towers. My perception of everything was very strange. I think I was completely in another world, you know. So what I was hearing, I wasn't really hearing like what you hear something, you know. Uh, it was more like a, like a feeling of sound. And I did hear in that soup of sound, I did hear boats, you know, sirens of boats, which was beautiful, like people living from far away country. And I did hear these crazy sirens, uh, well known in New York, about police and ambulances. And I did hear some kind of wave of sound that I'm sure was the traffic stopping and the crowd looking up. Often, buildings speak to you. What happens in a tall building is that in the wind, as the building moves, the floor above moves with respect to the floor below. My full name is Leslie E. Robertson. I'm a structural engineer, and I was responsible for the design of the World Trade Center. This cassette tape was one of many that we took during the construction and later occupation of the building. For each cycle of oscillation of the building, you hear two creaking noises. And therefore, if you have a tape of it, you can then measure rather precisely the frequency of oscillation of the building itself. It takes 10 seconds for a World Trade Center to, to go through one cycle of oscillation. This concludes the recording at the 67th floor Tower A projection room. I just got so into the building, talking about going down 70 feet to bedrock, the sky lobby system that they used, the slurry trench system that they use. I'm Olivia Varazzi Zdanowitz, and I was a construction guide for the World Trade Center during the summers of 1968, 69, and 1970. My name is Sandy Austin Asbury. I'm an FBI agent here in Pierre, South Dakota. I was a construction guide at the World Trade Center in the summers, 1968, 69, 70. On their lunch hour, people would stand at these fences eating their sandwiches and looking at the unbelievable hole that was going to become the World Trade Center. The guides were a very good public relations move to get some enthusiasm over what this was going to mean to the whole look of Manhattan. We stood out in booths on Church Street that were elevated up a couple steps 
We couldn't just stand on a street corner and hand out a pamphlet because we'd get run over by the crowds of people coming out of the subways. So they gave us a little blue and white booth. And I remember this little wizened, weather-faced little carnation seller, and he kind of looked like a Popeye. He would walk up and give each one of us fresh carnations every day. He was one of the first people I thought of when I heard about the Trade Center collapsing. Sixty-four degrees at eight o'clock. It's Tuesday, September eleventh. I'm Lee Harris. Here's what's happening. It's primary day, and the polls are open in New York City. Voters are deciding among about two hundred and fifty candidates for mayor, city council. It's gonna be a beautiful day today. Sunshine throughout. Really a splendid September day. The afternoon temperature about eighty degrees. My name is Stephen Manning. I um, headed downtown at eight o'clock on, on that day, and uh, I was on my way to buy the new Bob Dylan record, which had just been released that day, and I wanted to pick it up at JNR Music World, a few blocks down from the World Trade Center. I emerged from the Chamber Street subway when I heard a deafening roar overhead, and I wheeled around, looked up, and saw the first jetliner plow into the Trade Center. I had my tape recorder with me because I was actually going uptown to do an interview later in the day. I turned it on, I raced towards the Twin Towers. We heard this unbelievable sound and um, looked up and saw that uh, Tower 1 was cracking open. The whole building just fell down. The entire World Trade Center is collapsing. We had an airplane crash directly into the Pentagon. Ejection 68 inches, 35 inches, 50 inches, 64 inches. I've got my back to the sun cause the light is too intense I can't see what everybody in the world is up against Can't turn back You can't come back Sometimes we push too far One day you'll open up your eyes and you'll see where we are. Message five received September eleventh at eight fifty nine. A.M. Hey, Beverly, this is Sean. In case you get uh, get this message, uh, there's been an explosion in World Trade 1. That's the other building. It looks like a plane struck it um, on fire at about the 90th floor, and it's, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> Bye. Received September 11th at 9.02 A.M. Yeah, honey, this is Sean again. Uh, looks like we'll be in this tower for a while. Um, it's it's uh, secure here. But I'll talk to you later. Bye. Julia Sweeney sent us this message from her husband, Brian, who was on United Flight 175 from Boston to Los Angeles on Tuesday morning, September 11th. 
sent this note with her tape. These are the words, in case they are hard to understand. Hey Jules, this is Brian. Listen, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked. If things don't go well, and it's not looking good, I just want you to know that I absolutely love you. I want you to do good, go have good times. The same to my parents and everybody, and I just totally love you. And I'll see you when you get here. Bye, babe. I hope I call you. I was sitting at my desk on the 77th floor when the plane hit, and my immediate thought was for my son. He was on the 105th floor. And my thought was that he would survive, that the fireman whom I heard on the stairs would be able to rescue him. I'm Herbert Weed. I'm the executive vice president of the World Trade Centers Association. I was there in 1993 on February 26th at 12.18 when the bomb went off in the, in the truck in the, in the basement. It was much worse. I knew it was much worse. It took me one hour to get out of the building. I kept thinking, he's 28 floors above me. I got out of 10 to 10. The building then collapsed to 10.28. He's, he's in the same building working for Cantor. My son had no chance. Everybody in Canada died, 658 people. Nobody above the 92nd floor lived in the World Trade Center, in the North Tower. What I hear all the time is my son. He was born on May 18th, 1976. He would have been 26 years old. All right, where's Todd? All right, Todd. So now let's make a toast to the two happiest people in the world, Heather and Jordan. It seems like just yesterday, Jordan, we were outside in front of our house playing basketball. We never did get to play for long, though, because one of us would always get loud and curse, and then Dad would yell at us and make us come inside. We decided, my wife and I, that we were going to set up a foundation because he had a problem as a child. He suffered from panic attacks. So we want to help any child that has a psychological difficulty. My church has asked me, they want to make a plaque for my son. And they asked me the other day if it's all right to put the World Trade Center on the plaque, and I said no. I love those buildings. I work there. I, it just becomes very hard for me personally. And yet I'm part of an association that promotes the concept of World Trade Centers. That's what I do. And I believe in that concept because the concept is completely opposite what these people did on that day. I, I, I have, I'm, I'm, from Le I'm from Lebanese background. I'm from the Middle East. My family's from the Middle East. I had so much hatred for these people. And I found it was consuming me. It, it, it really was not good for me to have so much hatred. The only answer is if you can make some good out of an evil, help somebody else, maybe, maybe you'll have a little peace. prayer service at the Atlantic Mosque in Brooklyn. I've been here since 1980 mm -hmm. in this area, one what, of the what, oldest. What's your home country? Egypt. Uh -huh. Egypt. One of a uh, member of the mosque and also I have my business in the middle of the block here. One of my, my friends who died, he his he used to work in uh, security in uh, World Trade Center, and this is our lusto. It's our lusto. We should be united, Muslim, Christian, Jew, Hindu. We're all of us supposed to be united to overcome and rebuild our city again.
message 22 was received at 2 p.m. December 3rd. Hello, my name is Colin Travers. A friend brought my attention to this um, Sonic Memorial you guys are putting together. And actually a friend of mine, Eric Miner, and myself created in the, in the two weeks following the 11th a World Trade Center dedication piece. Um, it's basically a hip-hop using samples from MSNBC, some films, as well as um, basically scratching in different um, samples from records. I definitely would like to contribute to this because um, I know we poured our hearts into it and it definitely meant a lot to us. That's never forgive action. We don't need to escalate. No matter how good a job we do at mending fences and trying to bring peace to the world, we're going to have to live with a segment of the world that's extremely angry with the United States and with other parts of the world, and we're going to have to live with that for a very long time. The people who did this had lived in our midst. They'd seen our lawns and our kids and knew a lot about us and still carried a hatred that's deep enough so that they would give their lives. Leslie E. Robertson. I was... Uh, the chief engineer, I headed the design of the structural system for the building. I do wake up with the thoughts in my head. But we cannot possibly close the doors on all the targets. We cannot make the planes or the buildings suitable to resist these events. I'm not a believer in hardening buildings, and I think it's a wrong way to think about life. Message 29 was received at 7.30 a.m. Friday. This is Beverly Eckert. My husband, Sean Rooney, um, was killed on September 11th at the World Trade Center, and uh, my story about sound uh, starts this February when Sean turned 50. My sister made a special CD for him. Um, I gave her a list of songs that I thought were either Sean's favorite songs or, you know, kind of said were part of the story of his life. Um, we met when we were 16 and and um, being together with somebody that long, you know what songs they like. And um, the tape starts out with um, Come Softly and it starts out with bum, 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 ba -doo -be -doo -be -doo and I remember when we first played it for Sean, you know, when he got the CD, and you know, it was just the smile on his face when he heard that song. And uh, oh, there's uh, several several songs on there, uh, theme from a summer place, and town without pity. When Sean and I were 16, of course, nobody thought we were could possibly it could possibly last. So the adults of the world gave us quite a hard time, and, uh, and we were right because we stayed together for 34 years. And uh, um, the, uh, you made me so very happy, and um, that has special meaning to me because I did get to say goodbye to Sean um, on the phone uh, just before the building collapsed, and I did tell him that he made me so very happy. My name is Nikki Stern. My husband of 11 years, Jim Fatorti, was killed at the World Trade Center on September 11th. I got a lot of grief books early on. I think people were trying to figure out what to do to help me. And all of the grief books marked stages. Okay, first you're going to be numb, then you're going to be mad, then you're going to be this. It completely doesn't work that way. All five emotions and three others you didn't even know existed hit you all at once. And then there's a, a lull where you can almost function and so you do that. And then another tidal wave comes and hits you. The widows in particular, we always talk about, does this make sense, or is anybody else besides me feeling this way, or uh, I laughed today, is it okay that I laughed? Um, I am always going to be faced with the, the sight of the towers. We're all just going to keep seeing. It's going to be in the history books. That has to go into a mental picture along with my discussions with the medical examiner's office and all of that has to be put together in a picture book and stored somewhere. 
I don't know where yet. I'm Kenneth T. Jackson. I'm a professor of history at Columbia University and uh, the director of the New York Historical Society. There's an assumption that no matter whatever happens to the 16 acres of the World Trade Center, there will be a memorial or a monument to the 3,000 people who lost their lives there. A hundred and more years ago, that was never an assumption that somehow you'd build a monument or a memorial to people. Even battlefields, Waterloo, Gettysburg, were not immediately transformed into places of veneration and respect. Before the World Trade Center collapsed, the worst tragedy in New York history was the burning of an excursion ship called the General Slocum, uh, which was filled with women and children. It's a little over 1,100 people in June of 1904 when it caught fire on the East River. What are the memorials to the General Slocum? Well, there's a little kind of unimpressive monument in Tompkins Square Park, or the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which is one of America's best known tragedies where 146 mostly Italian and Jewish young women, mostly between the ages of 15 and 25, perished. One day jumping from the windows of the building, which is important to American history because it led to changes in factory laws around the country. You couldn't lock people in when they were at work. But what do we remember about the Triangle Shirtwaist? There's a plaque, and it's maybe two feet by two feet on the side of a building, and that's it. And what's ironic is that a hundred years ago, when they didn't think in terms of these group memorials, but they did sanctify death in yet another way, in that cemeteries and visiting cemeteries were really an important event, and whole families went, and they felt that they were communing with not only the dead person, but with God, and then also with nature. Now in our time, when we don't go to cemeteries anymore, and cemeteries are really isolated and almost scary places because they're so empty, but now we are drawn toward these kind of public memorials, whether it's the Vietnam Memorial in Washington or, you know, something else. One of the things from both the World Trade Center and the neighborhood before the World Trade Center reminds us to do is look around us now, look around at the old stores, the little stores, the big stores, and to remember what you see. I think it reminds us that we need to treasure the people we know, we need to treasure the neighborhoods we live in, all the relationships, everything that's important. Look at it, remember it, try to follow the way because uh, nothing is forever. You have 64 new messages. Message 1 was received at 11 p.m. February 4th. The Sonic Memorial was written and produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva with Ben Shapiro in collaboration with a gathering of radio producers, listeners, archivists, historians, New Yorkers, among others. Mixed by Jim McKee. Producer Jay Allison, curator of the Sonic Memorial phone line, and NPR's Jackie Leiden also contributed to the narration. The Sonic Memorial project team includes Jamie York, Laura Folger, Joe Richman, Eleanor Ostrinsky, Alana Berkowitz, Grace Key Heifetz, Sue Johnson, Vanessa Bertozzi, Britta Fromm, Allison Cornyn. Further contributors include Dave Isay, Stacey Abramson, Andy Lancet, Jad Abumrad, Marianne McCune, Beth Fertig, Tara Anderson, Kathy Brew, John Schaefer, Art Silverman, Mary Beth Bowen, Manoli Weatherell, Crystal Smith, Steve Dima, and the countless individuals and institutions who contributed to this memorial. Special mention goes to Anne Pasternak and Creative Time, author Angus Cress Gillespie, Joanne Wallace and KQED, Robert Krolwich and Deborah Amos, American Zoetrope, Rick Madden, and the community of public radio stations who helped bring these sounds and stories to air. The Sonic Memorial Project is a collaboration between Lost and Found Sound, NPR, WNYC, 
picture projects and independent radio producers nationwide. Major funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, Minnesota Public Radio, and listener contributions to the Sonic Memorial Fund. Project Travel is provided by a generous donation from JetBlue. The project website is sonicmemorial.org. The Sonic Memorial, part of public radio's special coverage, Understanding America After 9-11. This is Paul Auster. <laughs>